Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Tuesday, August 25th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Today on the show, Claremont II, and uh, when uh, one of our producers, Ty, got in touch with me that he said, you know, we're going to be talking to Claremont, and I had heard so much about Claremont, and I'd, you know, I've been somewhat familiar with his music, but I actually did a thing that I don't get to do enough. I don't, I'm sure you don't get to do it enough either, which is actually sit down, put your headphones on, and listen to a record without doing anything else. You know, like I wasn't walking anywhere and I wasn't, you know, driving anywhere. I just I just lay on my couch and looked at the ceiling and listened to the record. And it was, as you're going to hear me gush about in the interview, it is spectacular. Like it really gives itself to that deep listening because it's so dense. Like it's such powerful lyrics. It's such incredible abstract production. I mean, it feels like a... I don't know. It feels like you're, you're in a museum looking at a, an abstract painting that you somehow get. And the thing about Claremont II is that he's only 22 and he's making music like this. And he would agree with me when I say that he's not getting the attention that he deserves for it. It's obviously a very fickle industry, but it's also an industry in Canada that can favor – and maybe I'll use Claremont's words here to be careful – can favor some artists over others. And he's, uh, he wants to talk a little bit about why his particular style of hip-hop is not getting the attention it necessarily deserves and how he's fed up and how he, he's ready for it. And I, I would agree with him. He's, he's, he's ready for his moment. So Claremont II, you're going to talk about that and we're going to play some music as well. After that, Molly Burke, who is a um, – I, I, I want to be careful with what I say here. She's a fashion and makeup blogger on YouTube. She's a YouTuber who deals in makeup and fashion and she's legally blind. And she has some uh, interesting perspective uh, on that. And then finally, Black Bear, who is a, an incredible songwriter who writes songs for the likes of Justin Bieber and Billie Eilish and that, but also – or produces songs from that, I should say, as well – but also has had his own massive hits. And if there's one person who sort of like is music in 2020 in terms of all these genres coming together, it's him. All right. Show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Tuesday. Take a listen to this. Yeah. Yeah. Lil Ma from the air. Watch as though you playing without end your life. Yeah. I've been losing sleep and only getting dimes. Yeah. They just scared of me to know I'll take their wife. Yeah. Catch me with some ladies, you'll catch me with dimes. Jeez, I've been trying hard, trying way too hard. That's a little bit of G's from Claremont II. You'll find that on his Juno-nominated album from a couple of years ago called Little Mom from the Ave. Ever since Claremont II dropped his very first album back in 2013, he's been one everyone in Canadian music has been watching. And not just because of his raps, he's also just built a reputation as someone who's really versatile as an artist. He's got nice rhymes, he produces his own beats, and he directs his own music videos. He does all that stuff really well, but... He's also really prolific. Check this out. In the last seven years, Claremont's released pretty much a new project every year, and he's only 22. Case in point, his latest album. Take a listen to this. Don't tell me what you like. Don't comment on my life. Zigging down like. First to give advice. We not meeting twice. If 
little bit of done off Claremont's latest record, It's Not How It Sounds. That album joins a long legacy of homegrown releases that have helped make Toronto a respected hip-hop city all around the world and made Canada a country to look at for up-and-coming hip-hop. Claremont II joined me to more to talk about it, and, and we actually started out by surprising him with this clip we... I'm not going to say where we got it, but this clip we got of Claremont rapping when he was just six years old. Jeez, I got the, the rap get dead and go to drum roll then I stop because I have to stop get slower. Jeez, oh no, I smell like a porter. Jeez, Mr. Porter's my principal in my school. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> that's it for today. See you all later. That's it for today. <laughs> Claremont the wow. second. What did, what did we just hear? So that was me freestyling at like maybe five years old or something. Six that years old. It. Six years old. That's crazy. That's not. And that's basically how I got my G's ad lib. That's where I decided I was going to use the G's ad lib because I say it like eight times on that whole freestyle. Yeah, and you were six years old on that clip and you're already sounding pretty good. But I know it was in grade nine that things started to get pretty serious for you in terms of rapping. Yeah. I think it's rare in grade nine to be too serious about anything. So how did you end up getting so serious about it in grade nine? Um, I had a friend who rapped and he had kind of a, a crazy fan base um, for our age. It was insane. And him and another friend of mine, Hezzy, who's also on Loma from the Ave, um, Jahail is the other guy. We made this song in grade nine and we thought it was amazing. A week later, we're like, this is garbage. This is trash. But it got a thousand views in a night on YouTube. And to us, that was super impressive. So and that's the moment I knew I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do this forever because I want to be better than these guys. I want to. That was the moment. And I'm like, this is it. So in 2013, you put out the record Becoming a Gentleman. Since then, uh, you put out seven projects, including your latest album, that's seven projects in seven years. There are artists who haven't done that in their entire careers. I do find it interesting at someone your age. Uh, is an, is into albums because I think there's like an expectation around uh, uh, the next generation of musicians, the, your generation of musicians that, you know, kind of do one song and release it in another song and, and then release it. I do find it interesting that that album, that long experience is your thing. I mean, I, I feel like my age group, even though it looks a lot different now, um, I think we were the last people to really um, experience, like, at least for me, uh, not having internet. Um the artists that we had were all about albums, you know. What albums? What albums did you love? Um, so for the first like, I don't know, half of my life, I only listened to gospel music because I grew up in a Christian household, so everything was gospel music. So you, you know, you got Kirk Franklin albums, um, Ty Tribet. I think when we talk about Kirk Frank- Franklin records and when we talk about those kind of gospel records. We focus so much on the lyrics and like the God content. What I always hear in those records is like unbelievable playing, like unbelievable yeah. musicianship. musicianship like, these guys are out, out, yeah. In, out the, yeah, they're incredible yeah. musicians. And I think what I think personally what make uh, what I think make made Kirk Franklin different was his songwriting was like able to be applied even in the secular world. Yeah. Uh, he has a song called Love that I feel like it's it. it you know, he does mention Jesus in the song, but if you even take away um, him mentioning Jesus, it just sounds like a universal love song. Mm. Um, and and that's what I think made him stand out. His songs were just universal songs. Well, there, there are there are references to God on on this new record too. You know, I yeah. I, I caught a couple Always. of those. Like it's it's in there. You know. Yeah, like I grew up in church, you know, and and I do believe in God, and 
it's always going to be a part of me. It's going, it's, 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 it's stapled into me. Um, I do have my questions, yeah. uh, but I, I do believe that, that God exists and I reference that upbringing all the time. And, and I want to talk to you about some of those influences because I think they show up on the record. Take a listen to this. If you're just tuning in, my name is Tom Power. You're listening to Q. My guest is Claremont II. That's Dream off his latest album, It's Not How It Sounds. So there I was, lying on the couch, looking at the ceiling, nodding along to this record, kind of like smiling and kind of dancing and moving and hearing you kind of rap about your life and, and, and talk about your friends. And it's like, and I'm laughing out loud and I'm getting excited. And then this track comes on and it really kind of stops me. And it's kind of like uh, unlike anything else on the record. And, mm-hmm. you know... But while we're here, I should say what we need before our time. It's been years. I still see you when I dream sometimes. So I want you to tell me about, if you don't feel comfortable, uh, you don't feel comfortable telling me about who the song is about. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But at least tell me where that song came from. Um, I, I knew I wanted to make a song that was universal, but I think what had sparked that song was I had a dream about um, somebody in high school. and. Like, I think it was like a hall monitor. And I'm like, this is a really random dream. But then I thought of the idea. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if like you dream of people, if, you know, if they dream of you too, or like if they think about you um, here and there and are they doing all okay? And I, I actually had a cousin who passed away um, a couple years back. And he, like, since that's happened, like the influence of of him and, and just kind of that thing happening, um, especially to something so bad, like, like gun violence, something that's like untimely. Um, somebody who's like only a year older than you. Uh, that's something that I always think about when I write. So when I was writing that, it was just kind of, of natural. Like we, you know, utilize the time that we have here because like you could get a phone call tomorrow on some random, on some random tip, just, and you, you don't know what to do. You're confused. So, but yeah. I'm sorry about your cousin. Do you want to say, do you want to say their name? Uh, Malik. His name was Malik. Uh, yeah, man. He. It's weird because he looks like me. We look the same, and it's just we're moving forward. Um, obviously, never forgetting because you think about it every day. What what a legacy he left uh, through through that song and, and through you. Mm-hmm. You know, your record and the success of it and the uh, joy we got listening to it did start a bit of a conversation in our office about. You know, what is a, a rapper these days, you know, and there's been mm-hmm. a lot of conversations about how rap has evolved. And you look at someone like Drake and what he's done to rap and you look at someone like Future and what he's done to rap, not just to mention Post Malone and DaBaby. But what, what do you think a rapper is right now? I'm old. I'm young, but I'm old school <laughs> in the sense where, <laughs> where like, to, like to me, a rapper is still a rapper. Like if you rap, you straight up rap. um, if you're melodic rapping, you're still rapping because it's melodic rap. You know, there's groups from back in the day who were doing that. You got like people like what Bone Thugs and Harmony, uh, Freestyle Fellowship, who were adding notes to their to their rhymes. Like every word you say has a note to it. Um, but you know what I mean? Uh, melodic rapping, and then, but I mean, if man, if people are just singing, then they're singing. So 
if you look at somebody like Post Malone, I don't consider him a rapper. I think he's just singing. You yeah, know what but, I mean? and are kids like are kids coming up after you? Are they still rapping, or are they more like doing that sort of Drake style singing? Rapping? I think it's. I think it's. I think they're blending it a little bit more. I'm hearing a lot of melodic rapping. Uh, that's kind of seems to be the thing at least going on um, in Toronto. Uh, sing sing rapping is is kind of what's happening. Uh, me, I just I just do whatever. Per, like I, I'm just like you know I'm gonna rap on this I'm gonna sing on this it is what it is you know and that's the the, the fact that you do whatever is really clear on this record um, because part of what's getting you all this acclaim and attention is is that you're not just a rapper no, there's nothing wrong with being just a rapper but you produce mm-hmm. the bulk of your yeah. songs you direct almost all your music videos and you do all of those things as I mentioned at the beginning very very well why is it important to in a time when there's never been more collaboration mm-hmm. why is it important to still do this stuff by yourself um. I was always interested in making something timeless and classic and, and, and just uh, lasting forever um, ultimately. And I think part of doing that requires a clear direction um, and me being at the forefront of that. I know exactly where I want to go and how something is going to build, um, how something is going to fill out, how it's going to be fleshed out. And once you start having too many hands in the pot, everybody wants their say. When this all started, it was like I couldn't get any help. And now that, you know, I don't need the help, it's it's kind of it's kind of perfect. It kind of works out. It allows me to just do it and you get the finished product. And if you don't like it, that's fine. And if you do, thank you. Claremont, you know, when you look at Toronto right now, we're constantly being told that Toronto is like the home of hip hop right now, or at least it's like it's the one of the big cities in hip hop on the world stage, right? And you know that's usually thanks to Drake and and Tory Lanez and The Weeknd and, and independent artists too, like Pressa. But like, I'm interested as an artist who's actually living in this city, actually making this music. Does it actually feel that way to you? Not at all. <laughs> Not in the slightest. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like it's. I mean, why not? I'm. Uh, I think because. When I look at the grander scale of things, um, there's let's be real. There's only four people that the world talks about from Toronto. You know, the big guys. There's like four, but all the smaller artists, um, they're not really making an aggressive impact outside of here. Um, and then sometimes they're not even making an impact in here. I feel like I'm one of those people who haven't even, who hasn't even made a big enough impact in my hometown. I'm from here. I've I've been consistent since, as you said, 2013. And I, I still feel like I've been kind of in the same circle, the same boat for like the past maybe two years, three years. Um, yeah, I'm you, not you, seeing you a tweet, dramatic You tweeted increase. about that earlier this year. You said, yeah. um, it's, I, I've been too damn nice for a while, but I'm fed up year after year. I've been making these great albums, videos, <laughs> and content out of my shallow pockets. They're falling on deaf ears and eyes dying out months later not anymore yeah i i knew so i ultimately i'm happy with creating an album and putting it out that's that's where my happiness comes from like i'm good with that i don't need the fame i don't even if i wanted fame i don't need it now um i know when it comes it'll come so i'm patient um what I did know is once I said all of that, people would be talking and it would start a grander conversation, a bigger conversation about what's wrong with, you know, um, whether that be the industry or what's wrong with my city. 
Well, and let's talk just before we go. I want to talk a little bit about this in terms of like the industry as well, because you know, in the past couple of months, we're seeing a lot of different initiatives come from the Black music community in Canada. You have like the Advanced Music Canada helping black music professionals get a leg up in the industry. You got John Torrier, the mayor of Toronto, and the Slate family giving two million bucks over the next four years to this issue. But like, just as, as someone who's in this industry, as someone who's starting out, not even starting out, someone who's making consistently great music, what would help your bottom line? Like as a black independent artist frustrated with the Canadian music industry, what would, what would help? What would help me? Man, I just think people need to stop using my name for cool, cool factor, and stop using my name you know, to to seem like there is no reason, personally, I feel <laughs> that I shouldn't have. I think I should have won the Juno in 2017. That's just VV. I think I should have won it because you're going to give it to the most popular artist that was nominated. Why? Why would you do that? And I, re- I remember you actually talking like you made a joke, I think, of. Uh, we, the money that Drake used on his music video uh, was actually the Junos paid him to come to the Junos that year. Is that what you said? <laughs> I should I, I should clarify the joke. So the joke was that um, Drake had uh, spent a lot of money on a music video and that I said that the Junos had actually paid that same amount of money to Drake to get him to show up at the Junos and he still didn't show up. Yeah, that was the, exactly. that was the joke I made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I just feel like it's a it's a broken system. Um, where I feel personally, I don't need validation from the Junos. I don't need validation from any award show um, because I know that what I make is great and the people that like it, like it. However, I saw a lot of people that were backed by the biggest labels in the world, all nominated. So you see Sony, see Warner, you see all these major players, you see the biggest names. It's like, why wasn't Havaya nominated? Havaya had one of the best projects, probably the best project. Why wasn't she nominated? Just based off of the talent. Um, I just think we need to take the chance on things that we actually like. Why are blogs, you know, quick to write a write-up on when, you know, one of the bigger artists drop a new song, but as a smaller artist, you have to go to them first and give them exclusive rights to post it for like the first week mm. or whatnot. Just if you like something, just talk about it. The, yeah. that's it. If you like something, just take your chance on it. You know, I, 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 I want to say that, like, I really do appreciate you telling me about some of the frustrations. I think people need to hear this. And especially, I really appreciate your honesty. And I don't want you to think that any of that clouds just like how great this record is. Congratulations on it. It's been lovely to talk to you. And thanks for making the time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, whoa. Don't tell me what you like. Don't comment on my life. Zigging down like. First to give advice, we not meeting twice if you silent to the wife. It's hard to be quiet, they ain't putting me on ice. I done been on eyes, I done been on CRTs, I done been on wides. Used to be outside, done being outside too many n- down light. I should stop being a punk, here I'm prayed over my life. Jamaican spots on Jane, got me red sauce on the fried. Always hella broke, borrow money from the guys. Claremont second with his song done off his new album. It's not how it sounds. Just before that, you heard my conversation with Claremont second. He's a rapper, singer, producer, director based in Toronto. It's not how it sounds, which uh, I was not just glowing about it in the interview with him. It is one of the best records I've heard out of this country all year. It's out everywhere now. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist. Katie Henriksen. 
brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. Whether you use YouTube to watch old 90s music videos, baby penguin zoo cams, yoga tutorials, or Seinfeld bloopers, one thing is pretty undeniable. YouTube is a platform that helps artists and creators who are starting out in a way that we really haven't seen before. I mean, for the longest time, if you wanted to get on TV or you wanted to get on the radio, if you wanted to be heard by a lot of people... You essentially had to be approved by a bunch of dudes in suits sitting at board tables chomping on cigars and going, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll put you on the television box there, I see. I think you're up to snuff. But with, YouTube, but with YouTube, you can skip past gatekeepers and connect directly with an audience and tell your story the way you want to tell it. Molly Burke is a great example. She's a YouTuber. She's from Oakville, Ontario. She's got a fan base of almost 2 million people. And if you go to Molly's channel, you'll see makeup tutorials, clothing hauls, hair transformations, typical beauty YouTube stuff. But there's a whole other side to Molly's story. She has retinitis pigmentosa. It's a, a degenerative eye disease that's caused her to lose her vision. And she's lived with it since she was a kid. She's legally blind. And now she's dominating the beauty community and making educational videos like this. This video is all about my cringy, awkward, blind girl moments like petting a stranger's leg instead of petting my guide dog or having a conversation and not realizing that the person I'm talking to actually got up and walked away. All of those things happen frequently. That's Molly Burke's video called 10 Questions to Not Ask a Blind Person. And Molly's about to tell you her unbelievable story, but... I do want to let you know that Molly uh, spent some time in a period of depression, which led her to a pretty dark place. So just a heads up, if you're, uh, if you're feeling any of those emotions yourself, uh, that she is going to talk about that. I spoke with Molly from Los Angeles earlier this year. Hey. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to have you. I, I heard that you decided you wanted to be an entertainer when you did public speaking when you were five. I did. I was five years old when I did my first uh, kind of appearance on stage. I said like one line. It was like, ladies and gentlemen, start your engines at this uh, little fundraiser. And it was that moment that I fell in love with being on the stage and performing. And I begged my parents to put me into <laughs> acting classes. And I told them I was going to move to L.A. and be a star. And, you know, here I am in L.A. 20 years later. It all worked out. Th God love public speaking, eh? Exactly. Thank God they let me do it. Um, when were you first diagnosed with um, retinitis pigmentosa? Well, my parents knew something was wrong uh, when I was about six months old. But the problem is I have, a, I have a couple diagnoses. But they would kind of like diagnose me with something 
less significant and I would actually have it, but it wasn't the whole story. So it just made it very complicated. So they finally got the full diagnosis of RP when I was four years old. When you were four years old. And and you lost your vision when you were 14. Is that right? Yeah, I lost the majority of it at 14. It was, you know, uh, progressively losing my vision over the years. Then 14 is when I had just a really quick, uh, aggressive loss of vision. How did your life change after that? I mean, it pretty much changed in in every way. Um, I went from being, you know, a popular, happy, outgoing, bubbly girl uh, to being severely depressed, uh, contemplating suicide, losing all of my friends, being severely bullied, and and really losing everything I thought I was. And I had to kind of go through this process of mourning the loss of my vision, myself, the life I thought I was going to have, and find and accept this whole new identity inside of myself. So take me to when YouTube videos, and especially around beauty and makeup, entered your world. Well, it's exactly kind of around that time, 2008, 2009. Uh, YouTube was still pretty new at the time. It was mainly for funny cat videos. That's what I knew of it, or music videos. Um, But at the time, you know, I didn't have any friends left. So I wasn't going out on the weekends to sleepovers or going shopping with my girlfriends. So I had a lot of time to spend alone in my room on the internet. And it went from funny cat videos and music videos to music covers. And all of a sudden, I ended up finding this kind of beauty and lifestyle community on YouTube. These girls that were all around the same age as me talking about dating and boys and makeup and fashion and hair and all of these things that I cared about. And as silly as it sounds, they kind of became my friends. And did you start feeling like a community around that when you started? Like, How did that lead to you making your own videos? Well, I always loved that to them, I was probably just another comment, another view. But to me, they were not just my big sisters, my best friends. They were my guide to learning to love makeup and fashion again without seeing it, to figuring out, you know, how to know if a boy likes you and all of these like cute little things that I didn't have in real life. Um, And I felt that was so special that um, there was this community that didn't even know each other, but was so important in each other's lives. And from that time on, I knew that I wanted to make my own channel one day, but I knew that I wasn't going to be ready to start my own channel until I was on the other side of my journey um, and in a really much better place. And for me, that came when I was 20. How'd you get there? Uh, A lot of things. Unfortunately, there is no fix-it-all solution. Uh, It was therapy, seeking professional help. Um, But at the time when I was 20, I had been a motivational speaker full-time for two years, and I ended up having uh, a workplace accident. I fell off a five-foot stage, and I'm only four foot ten, so it was a big drop for me, Mm -hmm. Um, and was dealing with severe PTSD. So all of a sudden, this kind of biggest passion of mine, which ended up becoming my career, I could no longer do because every time I would get on stage, I would have a PTSD episode. And so I ended up having to leave my job and I was, you know, starting to to be like, oh, my God, I worked so hard to build up my life again. And now it's all crumbling down. And at the same time, my guide dog, Gypsy, very unexpectedly passed away. And for me, this was as difficult a year as... um as 14 was for me when I lost my vision. And so then again, I'm figuring out recovery and I'm figuring out rebuilding my life. And I decided I wanted to start a YouTube channel. And I'm so glad I did. 
We have a clip. Just take a listen to this. I've promised it for months, and it's actually here, my blind girl makeup tutorial. And for those of you who have no idea who I am, yeah, I'm blind, so that's a thing. I'd also like to mention that one of the benefits of being a blind girl is that I can walk out of the house feeling equally as confident with no makeup on as I get to walk out of the house with my makeup on. That's my guest, Molly Burke. And Molly, that's a clip from your video called Mirrorless Makeup Blind Girl Makeup Tutorial. Which is your first ever makeup video on YouTube from five years ago? What, what's it like to it hear is, that? It is. It's crazy. It's like weird <laughs> hearing it. I'm like, ah, I sound like a different person. <laughs> um, Molly, like, um, how do I how do I ask this? I mean, I, I would assume that making YouTube videos is a job that is both very visual and oftentimes a job that YouTubers do it on their own. Can you take me through your process? Yeah, for sure. Um, at first, it was. It was scary because I was like, I know I really want to do this and I'm really passionate about it, but I don't know how I'm going to do it because I don't know how I'm going to set up a camera and focus it and make sure I'm in frame. I don't know how I'm going to edit and upload all of these things. I was like, all I know is the content I want to make and being the personality in the video. Um, But luckily, I had an incredible boyfriend at the time who was willing to edit my videos while he was taking college classes and... My parents at the time were, like, terrified. They didn't want anything to do with it. They're like, my 20-year-old daughter is going into her bedroom and recording videos that she's putting on the internet. I don't want to know what she's doing. Um, So my mom was willing to come in, set the camera up, and hit record. And that was it. Then she'd leave the room. And so that was kind of the system for a long time. And then a year into my channel, my boyfriend and I broke up. And all of a sudden, it was like, okay, well... Now I'm going to have to figure out how to do this again. Um, So, yeah, it's just kind of been a journey ever since. And now I have an incredible team. I have my mom works full time for me. I have an assistant. I have two editors. I have a manager. It's like a whole running business now. You're you're not a businessman. You're a businessman. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's kind of crazy. Who would have thought internet videos would get me here? I know, but but also I can't help but think, you know, in addition to your mom being able to help you out and being able to support your family, which is incredible. Um I can't help but go back to what you told me. I mean, you were in such a you were in such a dark time. You were experiencing PTSD. You were trying to deal with the loss of your vision, the loss of your friends, and you had found something to help fill that hole. And then that had kind of gone away. When did you start to realize that maybe these videos you were making had started to work? Had started to give you that thing that you were looking for? You know, for me, it was never about um, the money. It was never about the fame. To me, I never really expected it to get to where it is today because especially at the time, there was maybe five people with disabilities making content and none of them were really making a full-time living out of it. So it was a very niche thing. Um, So it was really more about my passion to get my story out there and build community more than it was about becoming a YouTube star. And so, you know, it took me two years of consistently uploading videos to even get to like 2,000 subscribers. So I didn't really think for a long time it was going to work. And I think if I wasn't it for the fame or the money, I would have given up a hell of a lot sooner than two years with 2,000 subscribers. But I'm so glad I did stick it out because, you know, now we're five and a half years in and almost 2 million subscribers. What was the turning point? Like, I I, I don't fully understand. Like, what was the turning point where you started to go like, oh my God, this thing is actually starting to take off? Well, I had about 5,000 subscribers and VidCon Uh, back in 2016, invited me to speak on a panel about accessibility on YouTube. And VidCon is the largest social media conference in the world that happens every year here in LA. And I was like, 
shocked that they invited me because usually the people that get invited are people with millions of subscribers, not 5,000. But like I said, there was hardly anybody making content about disability. So when they decided they wanted to do a panel, even though I only had 5,000 subscribers, I was actually one of the biggest, which is wild to think about now. And so I went and um, that was the turning point for my mom because I needed her to come with me and assist me. And she came and she got it. She understood. She saw all of these massive creators who are authentically and vulnerably sharing themselves and their life and their story online and helping so many young people. And she was like, wow, this this is what you need to do. And so within a few months after that, we had found my manager um, and my manager came on. And even though at that point I now had 12,000 subscribers and everybody was telling him, what are you doing? You're crazy. She's never going to make it. He was like, I believe in this girl and she is going to be a star. And so with, with those two on my side, my mom and my manager, you know, they believed in me when at times I stopped believing in myself. And that was the real turning point. Your mom must be so proud of you. Yeah, I mean, my family, I wouldn't be where I am without them. My mom, my dad, my brother, um, they were there when I had no one and nothing. And they are still my best friends to this day. If you're just tuning in, I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Molly Burke is my guest. She's a Canadian YouTuber who makes videos about everything from her guide dog to how she does her makeup as a, as a legally blind person. Well, you can't see the makeup you're wearing or necessarily the clothes or, or the purple hair. You know, what does the act of giving, of putting on makeup and picking on clothing, what does that give you? You know, it's so funny. I just read a comment the other day that was, does she know she has purple hair? (laughs) I was like, no, I was going for blonde, but I guess I turned out purple. It's like, how does somebody think that was an accident? It's so funny when I read the comments, what people say. Um, So, yeah, no, I, I can't see that I have purple hair. You know, I'm almost totally blind. I have a bit of light and shadow perception left, but that's it. So I can't see colors. I can't see myself in the mirror. I can't see what clothes look like. But I have a passion. I have a burning desire to explore the world of beauty and fashion and share it with people um, because I loved it when I was sighted. And going blind didn't change who I am. It changed how I do things. And so even though I could no longer see makeup, it didn't mean all of a sudden I cared less that I decided I didn't need to wear it anymore. Um, but what did change is my confidence. Uh, I feel just as confident, as I said in that previous video clip, I feel just as confident with or without makeup. I could go on a first date without makeup on and it doesn't phase me. And I think that's really empowering and I feel grateful for that. But that said, I love putting on bold red lipstick and putting my hair in a messy top knot and throwing on some like killer black leather heels and rocking it. You know, it just like anybody, you look good, you feel good. And for me, it's almost like um, the effort of self-care, taking that time with myself to put my makeup on, pick out a killer outfit makes me feel really good. When it comes to a killer outfit, like picking out clothes, is, is texture very important to you? It's all about fabric and fit. And that's why I love doing fashion review videos on my channel because I think so many of the other girls who review these online clothing stores do so uh, from a visual lens. How does it look? But I think the base of clothes should be how does it feel? How is it constructed? What's the quality of it? Um, And what is the fit? Not just what does it look like? And so I started reviewing these online clothing stores, these very, you know, wasteful, cheap, fast fashion brands um, to basically tell people don't buy this stuff. It is 
It is not well made. It's ill-fitting. It is not good quality. It'll last you two washes, and you should not be spending your hard-earned money on that. Um, and that, to me, is what fashion is, quality clothing that's going to last you and that's going to f- actually flatter your body. Molly, earlier in, in our conversation, you were talking about how you got invited at VidCom, which is a gigantic you know, uh, online video conference. You were invited to speak on a panel about you know, social media folks, uh, uh, internet video folks with disabilities. And there wasn't that many, so you got asked. Um, is, this, is it getting any better? It is insane how much the community has grown. It's incredible. I feel like every day I'm finding another channel run by a person with a disability who's like over 100,000 subscribers and making a full-time living with this, which five and a half years ago, like I said, was absolutely not the case. And it's it's really cool to feel like I was a part of pioneering this community, um, and I feel really proud of where our community is today. You know, it's funny. At the beginning, I was talking about you and I said that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, I don't know if this would have existed. Like, you know, in order to get on television or in order to get on the radio or or do any of these kind of things, you had to go – you had to look a certain way. You had to go past a panel of people who generally all looked a certain way. I don't know if there would have been room for someone like you. I mean, does that ever cross your mind? Are you grateful that there's a platform like YouTube that exists right now to let you tell your story? I always joke that I'm very lucky to be a blind person in the 21st century because not only 20 to 30 years ago would somebody of me not really made it in the entertainment industry, but 30 to 40 years ago, somebody like me was segregated, uh, was taken away from their families and put in facilities. Um, So how far my community has come specifically, you know, we all talk about how quickly the world is changing and moving with things like technology. But for my community, we have made so many more leaps and bounds in terms of um, equality and access. And we're still nowhere near where we deserve to be or should be. But I hope that with the platform I have online, I'm helping change that. Molly Burke, it's been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Molly Burke is a YouTuber from Oakville, Ontario, now based in Los Angeles, California. If you want to watch her channel, you can find it at youtube.com slash Molly Burke, Burke with an E, official. And check out her memoir. It's called It's Not What It Looks Like, and it's available on Audible. So over the past 20 years, the internet has really changed the way that you consume music. You might remember going to a record store, and you might still go to go to a record store, as I mean, I know I do, and you go in and everything's labeled by genre, right? Oh, I want a rock record. I'm going to go to the rock section. I want a jazz record. I'm going to go to the jazz section. I'm going to go to the hip-hop section for hip-hop, et cetera, et cetera, right? But like, I think because you can get anything you want whenever you want right now, music categories and music genres aren't really important anymore, or at least they're not as important as they used to be, like pop versus punk or what is rap versus what is R&B. Those distinctions are kind of dissolving. I mean, you heard us talk about that with Claremont II earlier, you know, what is a rapper right now that rap is is changing. I feel like if you can combine that um, that change, like if you take all of the genres in your virtual record store and combine it into one artist who represents now in music, it might sound something like this. Forget you and you and you. I hate your friends and they hate me too. I'm through, I'm through, I'm through. 
This that hot girl by my anthem, turn it up and throw a tantrum. This that hot girl by my anthem, turn it up and throw a tantrum. This that throw a I just want to point out that is uh, Matthew uh, Musto, aka Blackbeard, with Hot Girl Bummer. I just want to point out that when he says forget you off the top of that, that's the radio edit. He doesn't say forget in the real version. That's from his new album, Everything Means Nothing, that came out last summer. That song has more than 580 million streams on Spotify. And for Black Bear, online buzz has transformed into real life stardom. He started out uploading his own songs to SoundCloud, like a lot of aspiring musicians. And he developed this really universal appeal that now he's working with everyone from Justin Bieber to Billie Eilish. He was working with Linkin Park. Black Bear's rise comes with its share of drama, like a near-death experience back in 2016. And now he's releasing his album and talking to us in the middle of another life-changing moment. But as you're about to hear, this one's a little happier. First off, let me say congratulations to you on your, <laughs> on, on your new kid. Oh, thanks so much. He's about to be seven months already. Time's flying. How is, um, I mean, you were, I guess you were sort of in a pandemic then before the pandemic because you probably weren't going out a whole lot with the kid. It was like, it was, yeah, it was right before the pandemic really was striking. It was um, January 26th is is his birthday. So, um, I mean, at least before the pandemic was striking in in the States for for us. I think in other countries, it kind of was, was, there was an eye open about it, but yeah, it, it definitely is. It, it might be a different at new abnormal for my son in the way he grows up. It might be a little different. I don't know. What about you though? I mean, they say that everything sort of changes when you become a father. Do you feel, do you feel changed? You know, I, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't, I, I feel totally different. I mean, it's just as far as like, maybe my priorities and things like that. I mean, I, like I basically just live, breathe, sleep music and, and any other free time I get, I'm not really like, you know, I'm not really calling up the tattoo guy as much. I'm not really like going and like just hanging out as much, obviously because we're in quarantine too. But I mean, it's just like every little, every little moment I get, I'm just chilling with my boy. I think that's supposed to be scary. I'll say I don't have any kids myself. And I think there was a time in my life where I thought, my God, I have so many things I like to do and so many friends I like to see and so many interests I like to have. And, you know, I, I think I thought for a while that if I, you know, if I, by inserting somebody else into that situation, they would take up that time. But I think you start to learn that that's very welcome. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's really welcome. And it's kind of just like, it's kind of just like, I'm, I'm really happy that that's the way it is. It's not like, it's, I don't feel robbed of like, I don't feel robbed of my twenties or anything like that. I feel like I really lived out a bunch of, and I just, I truly just want to hang out with my son and make, make really good music. Even though we're talking about the life getting so much better, you know, and getting so much richer, I can't help but think about the name of the new record. And I I typically don't ask too much about a title, but everything means nothing stuck out to me in particular with your new situation, with your situation with your near-death experience before, and in the situation that we're in right now. So what do those words mean to you? Everything means nothing. Everything means nothing is, is basically, you know, I, I think I started, I started really, I named it in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of quarantine and everything like that. And it's just like, I realized like, holy crap, like I got I got like a sports car in the, in the driveway that I haven't driven for three months and I don't even care about it as anymore. It really like these things mean nothing. And like, what really is bringing me happiness is, is the real hit records in my life are the people around me, my family and my friends. And, um, you know, just 
being a better person every day. So that, I mean, that's the real hit record. What, what got you there? You think? I think, I think it's just gratitude. I mean, it might sound cliche, but I, I, every morning I wake up and I say thank you to 10 people in my head. The first 10 people that come into my head, even if it's just somebody I passed on the street and I just say thank you in my head. And, you know, I say a prayer and like, I do a, I do, I write a list of like me and like 10 other guys. We just, I write a list of what I'm grateful for every day and every single day, just write a list of what I'm grateful for. And like making, making this, this inventory of, of just what I'm grateful for has made me, I think, realize what my prioritizations look like and just what my true happiness and joy comes from and stems from. And um, I, yeah, I, I think it's just gr- gratitude. It takes a while to get there, I know, because, you know, I, I've talked to enough people who have had, I've been privileged enough, I should say, to talk to enough people who have had hit songs the way you have, that I think I was once under the impression that once you get a hit song, my God, you're done. You don't have to worry about your bills. You can stay home. You can, you know, you can have a nice life, but it comes with the pressure to get the next one and then, and then to make different music and to make better music. I think that, that yeah, search and for, luckily yeah. I have I have incredible fans that that stream all of my music, not just the the singles. So I like I really like th- I'm really thankful for that, and that um, you know I I feel like I'm an album artist. I feel like you know people the fans the core fan base they listen to the full album, which is, which I'm so grateful for. You know the 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 album um, kind of both halves of it are very very interesting, and as someone who, as I mentioned at the beginning, came up online. You know, started to get their 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 kind of first attention online. It's interesting to the way you talk about the internet on your new record. Uh, take a listen to this. I'm the queen of broken hearts, break you in a thousand parts. Used to be a shooting star. When did I become so dark? Yeah. You need to chill, girl. Don't blame me. I'm too far gone. You can't save me, and I don't care. Pay me. And I'm faded. Take anything, make it about me. It's a heavy crown, it might drown me. I know it sucks being around me. So does life, don't at me, don't doubt me. I'm the queen of that is Queen of Broken Hearts from Black Bear's new album, Everything Means Nothing. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that song? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, thanks for the shout out. Uh, I mean, everything, everything Means Nothing has a lot of like internet based. I guess because we're in this, just this era of social media taking over our lives and and Queen of Broken Hearts actually is is about social media and social media, media being looked at like um, like a queen or somebody we worship or something like that, like a god, a goddess. And I was just feeling like I had a, a strong need for validation and to post the next picture and the next picture and get more likes and get more followers and and I don't know. I just I I feel like uh, maybe people can relate to that. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. Recently, I took a couple of weeks off this show, and I I had sort of a realization about how I mean, it sounds simple, but social media just wasn't making me feel very good. You know, like I was I was experiencing. I had some anxiety anyway, but I was starting to get like depressed, which doesn't typically ever really happen to me too much. And right. you know, I was talking to my therapist, and I was talking to people about it, and I said, well, maybe I'll just try to stay off. Twitter and Instagram so much. And um, I'm able to, you know, I will say, I've been saying to people, it was the difference between eating a Big Mac every day and not eating a Big Mac every day in, <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of how much better my mental health felt. But I'm very fortunate in that I don't exist, like my this, this thing is airing on podcasts and on the internet and stuff, but it's also airing on the radio. You know, I don't make my living from from the internet. And I often wonder about people sure. like yourself who are so closely connected to it. Are you able to to get away from it if it's causing you trouble? 
Well, also, like you said, the internet is a big part of why I'm even speaking to you right now. I mean, if it weren't for the internet, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be talking to me. You'd probably be talking to Ed Sheeran or someone else. <laughs> they didn't need the internet as much. You know, it was pure raw talent, but, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, somehow, somehow like my stupid poems that I put to rhythm, rhythm and blues made it, made it, um, you know, into pop culture and like, and I, I owe that to the internet and creating a fan base on the internet and, you know, just kind of like staying connected. And, but, you know, connectivity doesn't always mean, um, you know, uh, what, what I'm referring to as like the queen of broken hearts. I, 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 you, don't, you don't need to break your heart trying to be connected. How are, you, how are you doing with it? Like, how are you balancing your life and your career? I mean, I mean, so much being on the internet and, and what it can do to you. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I definitely, I write enough songs about it. So it's on my mind. I, uh, my screen time, my screen time, I think is like five hours a day, which I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm, I'm monitoring it and I'm, I'm looking at it and, and definitely like when I'm raising my kid, I'm going to, I'm going to watch his screen time as well. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. I don't know how I'm doing with it. I feel like it does affect my anxiety and depression. And, but it's also such a big part of staying connected with the fans as well and expressing myself too. I mean, on, on Twitter, you know, I, I, anytime I feel, anytime I feel like, like jammed up or funky, I kind of like post a tweet. And so (laughs) I don't know. And, And it just makes me feel better that people feel the same way as I do. You started out in punk rock. Is that attitude, like the culture, the attitude of punk rock still with you? Uh, I don't know, because the attitude of punk rock is like, is like screw pop music, like they ruin everything. And I'm kind of like my I, I, I guess my biggest dream as a kid was to sell out the House of Blues. And then we did a whole tour where I sold out the House of Blues every single one. And that and I just I guess I grew and I made new dreams and my new dreams are like, I want to sell out an arena tour and I want to have songs on the radio. So I don't know if it goes against the the no effects and rancid and dead Kennedys inside of me, but <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I I believe my my biggest single is uh, "F you, F you." I hate your friends and they hate me too. So maybe there's some of that in there. But so. and also um, for a pop artist, you know, for someone who makes you know huge pop singles, and we're going to talk about one of them in a second. You are kind of DIY. I mean, you, which is very punk. You know, you make it on your own. You 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 generally work independently. Totally, yeah. I I work with one other guy, Andrew Goldstein, and we produce together. And we and I basically write all the lyrics, and he helps with the melody. There is something punk about that, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's if you go into any other pop. Uh, session which I work in because I also write songs for pop artists and if you go in there it's a lot of cooks in the kitchen and it's a lot of you know opinions and oh what will people think about this and there's not there's an aspect of that not happening with my music if you're just tuning in my guest is Black Bear the singer songwriter and producer um, I do want to talk a little bit about one of the songs you wrote for somebody else only because this is a Canadian radio show so so by law we have to mention it uh, take a listen to this I'd like to be Everything you want Hey girl Let me talk to you If I was your boyfriend that is Justin Bieber with his 2012 hit Boyfriend, co-written by my guest Black Bear. Um, obviously a really breakthrough moment for you. I heard a story that it was like it was the first session you one of the first sessions you'd gone to 
Can you tell me a little bit about where that song came from and how you go from being like a punk rock kid to writing that song? <laughs> you know, Mike Posner heard, Mike Posner is an amazing best friend of mine. He's like a brother to me. Um, we have, we also have a side project called Mansions. He's, um, a, he's a great producer, a great songwriter himself. Yeah, he is. A, he is so insane and um, just musically and talented. He's a freak. He's a freak show. Um, you know, like we were doing sessions to write songs for his album and I was the first writer that he's ever worked with because he's kind of like me doesn't really like to work with writers he kind of likes to do his own thing so he was kind of taking a chance with me and we were just making a bunch of songs and that happened to be yeah one of the one of the first sessions we did I wouldn't say it's the first session just wham bam done but it was like it was definitely one of our first uh, encounters together and we we made that song for him and Scooter Braun ended up hearing it and was like, nope, this is Bieber. We're going to radio next week. So it just happened all really fast. I was 21 years old. I was basically like poor my whole life. Like not basically poor. I was poor and, you know, food stamps and everything like that. And, you know, government cheese. And um, so like, so really like my life changed overnight when, when I got the call that Justin Bieber was taking a song that, we made for Mike originally. And I was, I was just like, Oh my gosh. And they were like, yeah, you know, we're changing a bunch of lyrics to chocolate fondue and uh, buzz Lightyear." And I was like, go for it. I don't care. Let's do it. Justin Bieber. I love him. You know? So, so and, and, and are there just like weeks then when you're shopping at the grocery store and you're going, my God, in any day now, I'm going to get a notification in my bank account that says, I don't have to worry about any of this anymore. You know, I, it was weird because there was there was a few people who believed me they believed in me at universal publishing and they had signed me right before that happened maybe 2 months before i wrote that song so they actually believed in me with no songs with no with no big huge artist placements and you know so i actually had just i had just gotten the first chunk of money in my life and that happened a few days later so i guess I guess I hit like snake eyes on the roulette table. It was just insane. I mean, and you did so because you're you're so good. I mean, you did so not because you rolled the dice, but because you you have a talent that obviously people recognized and were able and were able to utilize. And when I was reading articles about that time in your life, like as soon as you got the big hit and you started to make your own music, it started. It seemed like it was a pretty incredible life you were leading. Your friends were over all the time. You know, you were partying. You were living exactly like a twenty. What you know? What else would a twenty-one year old do? if they became a millionaire overnight. I mean, I can only imagine. Right. 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 Yeah. We were going crazy. And, <laughs> and then kind of, I mean, then kind of it stopped. I mean, you, you found yourself on an operating table in 2016. Um, there's a lot of speculation that it was hard living, that it was booze that put you there. Do, do you mind telling me what happened? You know, I won't get into it too much, but, but basically I, I have a genetic disposition as well. It wasn't just the booze, but um, you know, I think it was maybe alcohol. I wasn't, I wasn't going to make it as a person who could regularly drink alcohol. Yeah. I, I basically, I only made it to 25, um, which, and, and got severe necrotizing chronic pancreatitis, um, which when I was in the hospital, they were looking at me like, dude, how old are you? Like you, you have the pancreas of like somebody who's 60 or something, you know? So I, I think genetically there's like organ problems, um, in my biological side of the family, which I was adopted. So I'm not sure too much about what, what's going on over there. So I, I actually under, I undergo eight surgeries later and um, um, I'm still getting procedures 
uh, you know, my next one is on the 11th of September. I have another procedure because I just keep having issues with this pancreas, even four years after four years now after um, quitting alcohol altogether, quitting drugs and alcohol altogether. How, how does that, how does almost dying change you artistically? You know, it just, like I said before, it makes me grateful. And it, it, I think it changes the reason why I'm doing these things. I'm not doing these things to flex on anyone. I'm not doing these things to, um, to, you know, seem cool or to seem somebody I'm not, I'm doing it because it's therapeutic for me and it helps other people. And, um, you know, it's my dream. In 2017, at the end of the interview I read with you, you said, you know, music is just a hobby for me. I only want to put out a couple more albums. I have to say, it, it, it doesn't sound like that talking to you now. No, I think I was going through something. I also suffer from a lot of depression and anxiety. I think I was having an episode. So are you, you're going to keep at it, I guess. <laughs> you know, that's what I want to know. Yeah, like, yeah I mean, I've, I've been in good spirits for the past year. Hopefully, hopefully uh, I don't throw it all away and retire. I think, I think I'm going to stick to it this time. I think there's, I don't think we value enough in our society the joy, like joyful music. Even though your music has a lot of anger and a lot of angst in it, you've, you've made a lot of people dance and, and feel really good. The production's and, pretty happy on the new yeah, album. Yeah, I would agree with you. And um, I, I, I think if you, you can take some solace in that, and it's been, it's been really nice to talk to you. Oh, you too, Tommy. Thank you. That was my conversation with singer and producer Black Bear. He just released the second half of his two-part album, Everything Means Nothing. That is it for the show today. He called me Tommy at the end of it. When I was a kid, I used to hate when people called me Tommy, but... I don't mind it anymore. You know, I'm, I'm okay with it. But my mom texted me saying, did you just call you Tommy? Thanks, mom. Uh, I'm glad you're listening. Uh, that is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, David Arquette, who um, is returning back to wrestling after being, I mean, you might know him from Scream. You might know him from a bunch of movies. You know, really big actor, especially in the 90s. But there was a time when he was considered to be like the death knell of professional wrestling. Like his appearance in professional wrestling was seen to be the end of the golden era of professional wrestling. And we're going to talk about that. All right. See you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.